Distractions Podcast, a podcast where we tell you stories of true crime, paranormal, and conspiracy theories to bring you a weird distraction to your everyday life. I'm your host, Alex, and I am joined by our first ever extra special guest, our friend, Maggie. Super special guest. Loving it. Love it. So, unfortunately, Christy can't join us this episode, but that's fine. No worries. She'll be back on sooner than later um as you've probably picked up she works a heck of a lot so i was lucky enough to convince maggie without having to plead and beg and grovel (laughs) and send no dragging no um to sit in for christy and it's also kind of nice because you're our actual first like guest on the show as mentioned which is like kind of cool super exciting Super exciting. So Maggie and I know each other from back when we used to flip burgs and salt fries <laughs> at AMW. Uh, how long has it been? It's almost been like, what, 10 years? 10 years since we've known it's each other? Yeah. Yeah, definitely almost 10 years. And through those 10 years, we've worked together at AMW. Shout out mm-hmm. for family club, I don't know, dub club, whatever. Uh, <laughs> we worked at uh, group homes together. Maggie got almost stabbed in the eye with a fork numerous times and lived to tell the tale. Always a fun time. Always a fun time. Never a dull moment. Never Busting dull. through windows and bubbles and yeah. stabbing me with forks. Like, it was, it was a good morning, I guess. It was a good time. Uh, we were roommates at one point. Her, Heck yes. Her, her now fiance. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, and I live together. And now we just try to plan spooky trips whenever, you know, we're able to, which right now we're not able to. But our actual first spooky trip was back last September. I think, Christian, I've maybe mentioned it before, but we went to Rolling Hills Asylum, which is episode 12. And the three of us had the weirdest experience in New York, I think. There's just so many, like, little weird things, like the the buffalo statues that we saw on the way, like, kind of <laughs> all over the place. Oh, my gosh. There was obviously the haunt, the whole Rolling Hills experience. There was the hotel, which that was an episode of its own, essentially, where I accidentally booked us a smoking hotel, smoking room hotel, and none of us smoked. So that was fun. We literally came in Febreze blazing. Okay, but that hotel room was definitely haunted. Definitely haunted. we, We came back. And went to bed, and you and I shared a bed with no cuddling, which was fine. Which but is fine. Uh, back to back, whatever. <laughs> I went to sleep thinking and definitely feeling that there was a presence at the end of the bed on your corner. And I was just thinking before going to sleep, like, okay, if I don't look at it, then it's not really there. And if it is going to attack anyone, 
it's gonna get you instead so it's fine <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the funny thing well not funny thing the creepy thing was the next morning so we went to rolling hills came back it was like what 3 a.m 4 a.m it was two, maybe two it was stupid early in the morning and so the next morning we woke up and i remember saying to you like Man, I was so, I was more freaked out in the hotel room because it felt like there was something at the edge of the bed on my side. And I like had to force to keep my eyes closed because I'm like, something's fucking there. Like, there's no doubt in my mind. And the look you gave, you're like, um. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. It wasn't just in my head. So, yeah, we've, we've been through the wire in terms of, you know, from burgers to forks in the eyes to presence in smoke hotel rooms you it's know it's been an adventure for it's sure. been an adventure so what is your need to distract yourself what is your requirement or not requirement your request to have a weird distraction this week oh my gosh well <laughs> you know covid is apparently still a thing but my distraction is from all the people that seem to think it's over because it's, it's not it's not over. And it just gets me really frustrated and exhausted that people just don't want to play by the rules anymore. And I'm sorry, dude, but she's still here. Uh, so still put on a mask. <laughs> yeah. And she yeah. doesn't get tired. Everybody no. else gets tired. I get it. But, like, it doesn't get tired. <laughs> no. No. And... I know, so in where you live right now and where I live, we both have now uh, mandatory mask bylaws where essentially like you have to wear a mask. The difference is where you live, there's like a $5,000 fine. Where I live, there isn't. So even though there's oh, a mandatory really? mask bylaw, there's no repercussions like there, as far as I'm aware of. So there's people still not wearing masks still giving side eyes to people who are and it's just like for freak's sakes like I get it it's uncomfortable for some people it's annoying whatever but so are taxes and you still got to pay your taxes that's something we've all mutually agreed upon that we're gonna do as a society so why can't we do that like apply that same acceptance and agreeing agreements agree agreeable agree agreement that's the word agreement on masks like dude a mask is way more comfortable than having to be on a ventilator so i'd rather have right. some fabric on the outside of my face than a tube going down my throat but, exactly and whatever man. with your job so do you want to tell our listeners um kind of what you do for a living what how you make your buck your buck or two <laughs> <laughs> uh so the easiest way to explain it is like I'm a slightly different PSW. So I do all, all the basic uh, PSW stuff like showers and making food and helping people. But I also do I'm really big on like independence and which was really great before COVID because I could go <laughs> out with people and like take friends and clients to drag shows and out for dinner and do all this cool stuff. And now that everybody's on lockdown and even more so stressed because I work with vulnerable people, um, it's right. just, yeah, a lot of mask wearing and doing some digital hangouts with people, but 
for the most part. I yeah, yeah, see the same three people every day, all day. And it's it's kind of for for people that don't understand the severity of it when you're working in kind of like a health field, like you you can't gamble people other people's lives, right? Like oh, and that's God, why no. That's why, like, the whole, you know, wearing a mask, just practicing social distance or physical distancing or, you know, spending time with only a certain group of people. If you are going to spend time outside of your home with other people, just be safe about it. Don't lick doorknobs. Don't cough on people. I've seen (laughs) a stupid amount of videos. I'm not going to hate on the States because actually most of our listeners are from the from the States. What up? Um, (laughs) But I see a lot of videos out of the States where people are just like literally coughing on one another as like a form of assault. And it's just like, yo, you can't do that. Like that's, first of all, that's fucking gross. Second of all, like in this kind of environment, that is the worst thing you can do. Like just shit on their doorstep like a normal human being and call it a day. Don't cough right (laughs) in your mouth. I don't understand. Well, when we're working at the group home and stuff, like, we could get smacked, punched, oh, yeah. kicked, at us. not a big deal. But if someone's going to spit on me or if someone's oh. going to cough on me, girl, like, hold me back. That is not okay. That was, like, my biggest pet peeve, I think. Between that and getting bit by people, other people, oh. humans biting, oh, I still have, actually, it's funny they brought that up, because I still actually have pictures from um, the one... <laughs> the one incident where you almost got a fork in the eye and I was getting essentially like my ass handed to me. (laughs) Damn snow days. Honestly. Essentially, (laughs) you know, we were all trying to maintain a routine. Everything was going good. And then bam, snow day and things just hit the wall because when you're dealing with, you know, children or adults who are so like their whole life depends on a routine to function like everyone does but you know there's certain um mental disorders or you know uh, cognitive disorders where you need a routine or everything's just out the window um and that was just one of the groups where you needed a routine and you needed to stick by it and if the schools were closed you were fucked so it was a it's a fun day but i found i found the pictures from that day where literally like i took them after to remind myself like you need a better job (laughs) you need something where you're not getting beat up yeah there were good days but there was definitely a lot of days where you know we probably shouldn't have mixed certain clients no and we definitely should have had more staff but you know getting bite marks and bruises and stuff is just part of the fun (laughs) day-to-day (laughs) <laughs> the day-to-day. Don't miss that. Absolutely not. So we're going to dive in. This week we're chatting true crime. And we are talking about Marsha P. Johnson. Do you recognize the name? Girl, you know I can't do names. I can't even remember my brother's name half the time. So. <laughs> All right. Give so me I- some weird details and I'll probably remember. All right, so I'm actually going to quote directly um, from a New York Times article by Sowell Chan. Chan. Um, essentially, this quote defines who she slash they were. Um, I don't know if they had preferred pronouns throughout the episode. I tried to just identify them as their name. 
um, just because I wasn't sure. But this quote uses she, so don't at me. I didn't write these words myself. So Marsha P. Johnson was an activist, a prostitute, a drag performer, and for nearly three decades, a fixture of street life in Greenwich Village. And you are smiling because it's hitting, right? Do you know? Yes. Uh, she, she was a central figure in a gay liberation movement energized by the 1969 police raid on the Stonewall Inn. Uh, she was a model for Andy Warhol. She battled severe mental illness. She was usually destitute and for much of her life effectively homeless. So that is like the positive negative background in a nutshell. But we're going to dive into it a little bit deeper than that. So Marsha was born on August 24th, 1945, making her a Virgo uh, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Marsha had six siblings and um, a father, Malcolm Michael Sr., who was assembly line worker at a car factory, while Marsha's mother, Alberta, was a housekeeper. Um, Marsha reportedly first began wearing dresses at the age of five, but stopped temporarily due to harassment by boys who lived nearby. In a 1992 interview, uh, Marsha described being a victim of sexual assault by a local teenage boy, and later on in the same interview, she described the idea of being openly gay at that time as kind of like some sort of dream. I mean, it was the 50s, 60s. It was definitely a dangerous time. Um, it didn't help that Marsha's mother reportedly said that being homosexual is like, quote, being lower than a dog, which Oof. I'm sorry, dogs are above all, like dogs are above humans in my mind. So sorry. And drag queens are and drag- up there with dogs. Exactly. <laughs> because drag Amazing. queens, dogs, other human beings. And at the very mm-hmm. bottom of the list, Karens. Anyways. <laughs> um, Marsha would report report that they felt that Alberta was unaware, obviously, of the LGBTQ community at the time. And essentially just I don't think they were as like the family was as open minded to homosexuality or being transgender or anything of that nature at that time or even who knows onward. Right. So after Marsha graduated high school in 1963, Marsha left home uh, to go to New York City with $15 and a bag of clothes, which sounds like a hustle. Like, that's, that's, I can't imagine leaving home with that and being like, yeah, I'm going to be able to make it. So that takes courage, like, right off the hop. So... First waiting on tables for an income after moving to Greenwich Village, also referred to as, quote, The Village, um, which reminds me of that movie, The Village, which still kind of freaks me out, but still really confusing. Anyways. I'm sure it's a very different village. A very different village, hopefully. (laughs) There's no one with just, like, a red hood coming around, like, trying to kill people. Hopefully not. Anyways, Marsha met more and more people who identified as uh, being part of the LGBTQ plus community, which overall would provide more courage for Marsha to come out themselves as gay. Uh, By 1966, Marsha was reportedly living on the streets and engaging in uh, like survival sex. 
Um, unfortunately, in connection with her sex work or their sex work, Marsha apparently claimed to have been arrested over a hundred times and was shot once sometime in the 1970s. Which Mar- is just mind blowing. Right? Well, hundred times. A hundred times just for trying to survive the. I don't want to say like the only way they knew how, but like the only means that they could maybe do. Do you know what I mean? Like. I'm putting up my hands in the air because I, I don't know what to say next because I'm just so baffled, but. <sighs> so Marsha initially used the name Black Marsha, but later decided on the drag queen name Marsha P. Johnson, getting Johnson from the restaurant Howard Johnson's on 42nd Street. And the P in Marsha P stood for pay it no mind. The phrase... <laughs> Pay it no mind was also used by Marsha when people would question their gender gender identity. Um, There was something else that I read that apparently during a court hearing, um, the judge had asked, you know, like, what does P stand for? And Marsha's like, pay it no mind. And the judge, like, loved it. He's like, I like that. That's that's going to go far. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Marsha verbally identified as gay and as a drag queen. She never, like, self-identified with the term transgender, but the term was not really used, like, as much back then. Um, it probably was, it wasn't an unheard thing, but at that point in time, transgender was referred to as transvestite, which don't, know the proper... Well, and then it's very... very more of like a spectrum now with transvestite, transsexual, transgender, like there's a whole, yeah. yeah. Exactly. But back then there was like, terminology was kind of coming up, but it wasn't, it wasn't defined, like it wasn't as outlined as it is today. Like there's no one, it wasn't like a big, as big of an umbrella, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, According to Susan, who teaches human gender and sexuality studies at the University of Arizona, Susan reported that they believed Marsha's gender expression could perhaps be most accurately by uh, most accurately be called or referred to as gender nonconforming, which we're more aware of now than back in the 60s. So in the drag department, Marsha's style was often quoted as not serious. Um, essentially, that means like they they weren't like wearing ball gowns and like anything like stupidly expensive. Like if you think of RuPaul, like every episode of Drag Race they would come out in like this beautiful gown of some sorts or um, Asia O'Hara, like any of like the, oh gosh, pageant queens. Like Marsha. Yeah. yeah. You're trying to look as feminine as possible. Exactly. Whereas Marsha would both dress masculine and feminine. And like she did have some quote, like high drag or like glamorous drag on stage, but most of her, like, most of the drag performance was, like, comedy or political-based. Um, there was always some kind of message that they were trying to, like, state. Um, Marsha, just for kind of, like, an imagery, was poorly tall, slender, and often dressed in, fl- like, flowing robes and shiny dresses, red plastic high heels and bright wigs. Um, Marsha was often seen wearing fresh flowered crowns, which that is just an aesthetic I want every day of my life. Um, Marsha would receive like these leftover flowers um, through the flower district of Manhattan, reportedly. Uh, Marsha 
also reportedly would sleep under the tables used at the flower district to sort their flowers. So that's kind of how she apparently uh, got these flower crowns was, you know, she, while she was homeless, she was like sleeping under some of their tables and they're like, here. Or she, you know, she would just take whatever was left over because like, why not? Flowers are flowers. Make yourself a flower crown. Very thrifty. Mm-hmm. Marcia sang and performed as a member of the NYC-based drag performance troupe called the Hot Peaches from 1972 <laughs> to the 1990s. Marcia was also asked to perform with another group. This group's name is amazing. The Cockettes. So All right. Instead of the Rockets, it's the Cockettes, <laughs> which here for it, here for it. Uh, by 1975, Marsha was photographed by famed artist Andy Warhol as part of a Ladies and Gentlemen series of Polaroids. And it's actually funny because I'll, I'll get into it a little bit, but um, there's a documentary, which I'm going to highly recommend everybody that's listening watch. It's amazing. But one of, uh, like, her family was being interviewed, and they were essentially saying, like, oh, we thought Marsha was lying about, you know, being like knowing Andy Warhol and then we all of a sudden see these pictures by Andy Warhol and it's like oh my gosh like Marsha was telling the truth it's like no shit um in 1990 Marsha performed with the Hot Peaches in London um and reportedly was trying to or not trying to they they were an AIDS activist they were like presenting as an AIDS activist or you know just advocating for AIDS, I guess. Uh, in that year, while singing the song Love, Marsha wore ACT UP, um, like an ACT UP, which stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Uh, the specific button from this coalition says silence equals death, which means, or which meant that essentially AIDS wasn't really being discussed as much. Like it was kind of coming up and happening, but people weren't really talking about it they weren't really addressing the fact that this was a an epidemic that wasn't even getting any attention kind of like how covid was at first (laughs) if you think about (laughs) it and now look at us now look at us uh, it was reported that Marsha was one of the first drag queens to go to the Stonewall Inn once they began opening things up to drag queens and women previously it was only for gay men and has also been named as one of the three vanguards who pushed back against police during the infamous Stonewall riots in 96. Following the Stonewall riot, following the Stone, Stonewall riot, uh, Marsha joined the Gay Liberation Front and was an active in the GLF Drag Queen Caucus uh, during a gay rights rally at New York City Hall in, in the early 70s, photographed by Diana Davies. A reporter asked Johnson why the group was demonstrating, which Marsha shouted into the microphone, Darling, I want my gay rights now. Which, (sighs) infamous. Amazing. Amazing. Um, In 1972, Marsha and fellow friend Sylvia Rivera created the Star House, a shelter for gay and trans street kids. While the house was not focused on performance, Marsha was considered, quote, a drag mother at the Star House. Um, Marsha worked at the Star House to provide clothing and food, along with providing emotional support and overall kind of like a sense of family to those who stayed. So 
essentially like it's a homeless shelter, but kind of focused in on the most unsupported group population. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Um, I apologize because some of these dates are all over the place, but we're getting to it. Don't worry. Uh, In 92, when George Siegel's Stonewall Memorial was moved to Christopher Street from Ohio to recognize the gay liberation movement, Marsha apparently commented, and this is a direct quote from Wikipedia, how many people have died for these two little statues to be put in the park to recognize gay people? How many years does it take for people to see that we're all brothers and sisters and human beings in the human race? I mean, how many years does it take for people to see we're all in this rat race together? which like no shit like has a point right like even to this day I still feel like we're still not recognizing that we're all in this crazy game called life and we all are just trying to do what's best for for ourselves and not recognizing that hey there's other people that aren't exactly like us but we still have to freaking respect them you don't have to understand everything I don't understand everything, and that's totally fine because I respect people's identities and decisions and their lifestyle. That's their jam. Go for it, man. Like Exactly. And unless it personally affects your day-to-day, like if for some reason you're not able to eat, sleep, walk, breathe, function because of someone else's lifestyle, then that says more about your mental capacity and your mental health than it does about theirs or about their life. Pay it no mind, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so as I mentioned before in the beginning, Marsha reportedly did struggle with mental health, um, expressing that their first mental, quote, like, quote, mental breakdown was in 1970. Uh, Marsha would be known to have a couple of hospital stints in which they would receive um, mental health treatment during the 70s as well. The problem was that Marsha and how the system still is to this day, Marsha would go to the hospital, um, be treated, and then be released with not real, I don't think there was a heck of a lot of community-based services at that point, but after a couple weeks, like, the medication would wear off, and Marsha would be back to square one, right? And in the States, once again, not trying to blast them, because Canada's no better, but their healthcare obviously isn't cheap and their healthcare isn't covered unless you have benefits or insurance. So I can imagine that, you know, probably, or maybe even not, who knows, but supports might've been offered, but there could have been that notion of, well, Marshall might not have been able to afford it. Right. Like they were living on the streets at that point in time. So not great. Their money is more on day to day living. Like, exactly. if you're going to pick your meds or your food, like, it's not a hard decision. Exactly. Marsha was typically known as generous and to be warm-hearted. However, obviously, when under mental duress or severe stress, Marsha would be known to become easily angered and even violent at times. I only saw this once in the Wikipedia page that I saw. I don't know if this is actually accurate or not. Um There also was never, like, a firm formal diagnosis that was ever stated about Marsha's mental health. Like, there was no, like, anything really publicized after the fact or whatever. But it appears that some people thought that Marsha maybe struggled from schizophrenia. However, like, 
once again, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't, I don't have those expensive papers to say that, but I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if Marsha had like some form of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. How I could mean, you not? Exactly. Like, like, yeah, it's like, you know, assaulted at a young age, unsure of, you know, possibly unsure of their gender identity or, you know, their sexual preference because of their family upbringings, because of the time, because of where they lived, you know, their overall identity was questioned. And finally, you know, they feel comfortable in it and we'll get to it. But obviously it wasn't just rainbows and sunshine after, you know, they came out. Right. And here comes the sad part. So Shortly after the 1992 Pride Parade, Marsha's body was discovered floating in the Hudson River near the Christopher Street Pier on July 6 at approximately 5.30 p.m. At the time of Marsha's death, the police ruled that Marsha had taken their own life. However, people that knew and loved Marsha felt that foul play was the reason for their death. Based on the fact that Marsha was found with a massive wound at the back of their head, things didn't really add up for a suicide. Because, like, if you think about it, how the fuck, like, how, just how, 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 how would you, why would you, like, like it wasn't, like, yeah. yeah, and it wasn't, like, a gunshot wound or anything, like, it was just, like, a massive, like, it looked like someone, like, took something and hit her, in, or, like, hit them in the back of the head, like, I, you know, and I don't, hard to do this, though, like, exactly, um, so even with Marsha's mental health being fragile at times, Sylvia noted that they and Marsha had made a pact that they would, quote, cross the River Jordan, a.k.a. the Hudson River, together. Um, and Sylvia and uh, Marsha were, like, thick as thieves. Like, they were ride or die, you know? So um, obviously this had this had a huge effect on everyone, but in the documentary, you can tell that Sylvia was very affected by this. Um and strongly felt that this was foul play. Uh, after Marsha was found, apparently several people came forward saying that they saw Marsha being harassed by a group of, quote, thugs who they recognized as being known to rob people in the area. A witness apparently saw a neighborhood resident fighting with Marsha on July 4th, 1992, in which during the fight, the man fighting Marsha used a homophobic slur. This man apparently later bragged to someone at a local bar that he, quote, killed a drag queen named Marsha. Damn. Do we think police looked into this at all? No. Absolutely fucking not. And of course not. If you're frustrated now, just wait. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, reported ignorance from the police became seemingly a problem as locals would state that they felt the police weren't paying enough attention to the case because Marsha was black, homosexual, and non-gender conforming, um, which unfortunately is still a problem today. Fast forward to 2002, a police investigation resulted in the reclassification of Marsha's death, uh, cause of death, sorry, from suicide to, quote, undetermined. Former New York politician, Tom Duane fought to reopen the case because, and this is a direct quote, usually when there is death by suicide, sorry, when, usually when there is death by suicide, the person usually leaves a note. She didn't leave a note, which yes, but no. Because sometimes they're like, 
I, I feel like the note or leaving a letter is kind of like a classic, like, oh, yeah, like, this is like a typical thing with suicide. It's it's not, unfortunately, as we both know. It's not. Mental health is not a blanket statement. If we have A, a suicide note, and B, then a suicide, C, oh, it's obviously a suicide. Yeah. No, everyone's experience and everyone's life is very different, and death is very different. Exactly. Like, it's not a simple procedure. I'm sorry. It's no. that's well, no. bullshit. Well, and it's kind of a piss off because if you think about it, how many true crime podcasts or TV shows or movies have we seen where someone is someone quote died by suicide and there's a suicide note yada 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 only for months and months to pass and people be like oh but that's not their writing what like you know so I I, I I'm glad that this politician um you know pushed to like reopen the case but like I just want it to be known that like it, as you mentioned it's not like a blanket a plus b plus a plus b equals c kind of rhythm like you could be suicidal you could attempt suicide and there's no no right like yeah. and to just go to an undetermined like did they work on it or did we just change the name of it and then forget just- about her we just changed the name, essentially, and we'll get to it. So um, in November 2012, activist Maria Lopez succeeded in getting the New York Police Department to reopen the case as a possible homicide. Um, in 2016, Victoria Cruz of the Anti-Violence Project also tried to get Marsha's case reopened. Um, so it was reopened, but there wasn't... Sorry, that's my wording... It was reopened, but I don't think people were actually look like I don't think the NYPD was actually looking at it. I think it was just reopened. Like they're just like, okay, well we'll just change it from closed to reopened, and then they let sit. And Victoria came out and was like, hey, like let's do some investigating. Well, exactly, (laughs) right. So Victoria sought out new interviews with witnesses, friends, other activists, and police who had worked the case or had been on the force the time of Marcia's death. And this is a good segue to the actual documentary I keep hinting at. So uh, the documentary name is called The Death and Life of Marcia P. Johnson. Um, it came out in 2017. It's on Netflix. Highly recommend it. It's super fascinating. And I won't lie I cried a little bit and by a little bit I mean a lot (laughs) because it's just well as you've already picked up this is a very heartbreaking case and unfortunately uh, these problems have not gone away Um, anyway so Victoria interviewed Marsha's family who reported that they saw Marsha a couple days before July 4th and when they were notified about the death of Marsha, they were denied being able to see the body, like Marsha's body, because, quote, they couldn't do that. Which, like, what? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> like, that's, like, unless there was, like, even if the body is so beyond recognition, I feel like they still will offer it if needed, but, like, they'll heavily caution. I mean, I don't know. I don't work in that field, but, like, I feel as if that's that's a That's a cop-out. Oh, yeah, it's a cop-out. Brush it under the rug. Move (laughs) forward. Exactly. Victoria then interviewed Marsha's former roommate, Randy, uh, who strongly felt that the suicide ruling of Marsha's death was, quote, an insult to the family. Uh, Randy reported that he last saw Marsha on July 2nd. So Randy, along with another 
community advocate Chelsea went on a quote night stroll, aka investigation two weeks after Marsh's death, essentially in the I think it was like Christopher Street Pier area um, where Marsha was found and kind of where Marsha was known to spend time in. Essentially, at the, like during the night stroll, they weren't really able to find out too much, but it's really important just because at that point they were kind of addressing about how dangerous it was for anyone really to be out at night, but especially, you know, people who had or who were identifying as part of the LGBTQ or people of color. So Randy provided a recorded interview to Victoria that was played in the documentary where people such as Chi-Chi, Marsha, Tina, and Alexis disclosed that the police in the area, the 6th precinct, uh, were harassing transgender people physically and verbally. Then after this, Victoria interviewed another friend of Marsha's, Kitty, uh, who noted that on July 4th, the two of them met during the day uh, and, you know, just kind of hanging out, walking around, doing whatever. And they agreed that later on, I think at around midnight, they were going to meet at a gay bar called Anvil. Um, Marsha never showed up. So Kitty was there and was like, where the fuck are you, Marsha? And Marsha just never showed up. <clears throat> Kitty shared that that night there was a car full of, quote, guidos um, that was driving around that Kitty was warned about. But they heard Marsha, like, Kitty heard that Marsha got into the car and Kitty never saw Marsha after that. So Kitty and Marsha supposed to meet in a bar. Marsha never shows up. Prior to, you know, there's this car full of, I'm mean, going to assume a car full of men, because I think Guido's is like the slang for Italian men or something like that. I could be very, very wrong. I just think of Jersey Shore, like, yeah. and I, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But, so, there's this car of these Guido's driving around, and, you know, they're maybe not up to good things we'll just speculate wildly and so kitty was warned about this you know car of men (laughs) driving around and was like oh like you know gotta avoid that and then later heard that marcia was in the car or got into the car so a parade followed after Marsha's death where ongoers chanted do your jobs along with justice for Marsha and called for the 6th precinct to re-review the case. So this is like right after um, right after the death they were kind of rioting being like hey NYPD 6th precinct do your fucking job like this isn't rocket science obviously this person is you know this person was murdered, obviously, like, there's no way this could have been a suicide, or no way that this wasn't done some, like, there wasn't, how do I put this? It's a hate crime. All in all, right? So stop trying to avoid it. Exactly. Stop trying to ignore it. Yeah. Do your goddamn job. Do your goddamn job. Because if this was, once again, like, a skinny, white, blonde girl from the Upper East Side, Oh my god, NYPD would have been all over it. Any police department would have been all over it. But because it was um, a black, transgender, non, like, non-gender conforming drag queen, we've got absolutely jack shit done. They're just like, oh yeah, it's a suicide. Job, like, job's done. Like During the documentary, Victoria called retired NYPD officer James R. R. Abrio, or Brio, uh, 
to try and set up a meeting to discuss the case in which she declined. Victoria was also told by another retired NYP off NYPD officer to, quote, leave it to people who can handle it. Which, like... Which is who? Which is whom, <laughs> sir? Because clearly, <laughs> your people, your people can't fucking handle it. That's why it had to be reopened, because someone didn't do their fucking job. Anyways... So, three weeks before Marsha's death, Marsha was interviewed on June 14th of 1992, stating that, quote, and this is going to be really, whew, you've been warned, this is where things get really, really weird, but, <clears throat> quote, my roommate Randy's really after the people from the festival committee, I think the ones that organize Pride, uh, I mean, he's doing a really big trip to change all these people around lately, which can get you murdered, you know. Further, Marsha was observed stating, quote, Randy tried to put me in the middle of it. I tell him I don't bite my tongue for nobody. I tell him I don't want to be bothered. So, honey, we're wondering when the mob is going to come with the bullets. And when the mob comes, darling, they say, why are you giving us, why are you giving out these flyers? What do you got against us? I don't have anything against yous. It's just that my roommate suspects that you's been racketeering and stuff. What? Hello, right? Borgia. Oh my god. Hello. So just to kind of summarize what Marsha was stating, so there were a bunch of different people organizing different kind of I'm gonna use the word the term pride, but essentially like LGBTQ parades and festivals and stuff, right? Especially in the 90s, because we're moving into a little bit more, a little bit more of societal acceptance, but we're still not at that point, because people fucking suck. Anyways, um, so it was kind of a, I'm going to use also the term hot commodity to, you know, have these parades, have these festivals, you know, promote this, like, oh my gosh, yes, New York, we're, we're super accepting, we're great, yada yada. But there's a theory that because Randy was trying to, quote, expose the festival, the festival, the festival committee rumored to be, quote, mob control, um, Marsha may have been caught up in this. So Randy, once again, Marsha's roommate um, and close friend, was trying to call out certain people who are running these festivals and parades and whatever, because there was no money coming back into the LGBTQ plus community. So like they'd have all these parades and whatever, like they'd have all this, all these events and then no money would come back in to actually support the community, which is kind of like the whole fucking point. Like you don't have a specific event without some kind of like an event like that without some kind of income coming back to support what you're having the event like it it just you know Randy well, might this is why you, this is why you see companies as soon as it's pride month putting rainbow flags oh. everywhere as soon as it's the last day of the month we're switching on to a different thing because they, this is why you see companies put up all these rainbow flags and posters and stuff during pride month and then as soon as it's the last day of the month, they decide to take it all down. And what have you actually done? Cool, you decorated flags, but did you do anything? Did you help the community? Exactly. Did you put any money forward, any effort? Like Exactly. Just- and 
it's like going with an aesthetic almost. It's like, oh my gosh, yes, we're a part of this movement. We're so into it. Yes, like, you know, buy our stuff, support us, support, you know, LGBTQ+. But in the same sense, it's like, okay, but like, does does any of the profit you're making, like any extra of the profit or any of the profit in general, does that actually go towards the community? Like, does that actually go towards helping those people? And I think that's where Randy was kind of like, okay, there's something funky about the festivals because we're not seeing shit, like, at all. There's no money coming back. There's no further support. Like, it's just one day where everyone's like, oh, my gosh, yes. Like, you know, we support you. But then there's nothing else after that day. It's like it's like Christmas. Like, we're going to be really, really happy. We're going to give each other gifts and pretend we don't hate each other. And then by Boxing Day, I'm going to return your shit gift and you're back on my shit list. And I don't want to talk to you or see you ever again. Like, And I pretended to agree with your beliefs for a day. And now it's back to whatever I feel like is right. No, this is... It's bullshit. So essentially, there seems to be a theory that because Randy was trying to, quote, expose the festival committee rumored to be, quote, mob controlled, that Marsha may have got caught in between. And as we heard, there was the quote essentially where she was like, you know, Randy was trying to get me in the middle of something. And I told him, like, you know, the mob's going to come after me. So, you know, Randy truly believed that there was mob ties behind this festival and that they were racketeering and like taking the money for themselves. So he hired a PI who said that the festival was being ran by Jacques Garon, who people suspected that, you know, was a part of the mob and profiting off these festivals. And Jacques Garon literally sounds like the atypical French man. No offense to anyone from France, but like, I'm picturing a guy with, what's it called? A, oh my gosh, what's it called? The hat. <laughs> the hat. Oh, oh, I don't know, but I can picture it in my head. A toupee? Is it a toupee? <laughs> is that what it is? No, a toupee is a hairpiece. Damn it, I don't know. Oh my God, we're going to Google this later and be so pissed off for not I'm remembering gonna the word. I'm going to my eyes out later, but... <laughs> So essentially, Jocks was potentially, don't quote me on this, but potentially involved the mob and, you know, behind the festival. So in the documentary, Victoria looked uh, through call logs. I think they're from where she worked. I don't know. I don't didn't actually get where exactly. But one of them stated that, quote, tell Rainy Wicker to leave Jocks red and blank. Blank. Nobody knows who it is. Um, in the note, uh, it didn't state a name. Or else what happened to Marsha will happen to him. So, like, suspicious. And supposedly, the NYPD had no information that Randy Wicker was receiving any kind of threats. And neither did Randy. (laughs) Victoria confronted Randy about the potential of the mob being involved, in which Randy didn't believe the mob could have been involved, but acknowledged that he was aware that Marsha had her own fears around the mob. I don't know if the mob was, like, a really powerful entity in the 90s at that time in New York City, but, like, I'd be afraid. But that's just because they all sound scary, right? Like, a bunch of middle-aged... It's a group group one person, right? Like... Yeah. I, I just picture, like, a bunch of, like, a group of middle-aged white men who have power over everything, which doesn't sound at all like every day life. <laughs> Such an odd concept. 
cis <laughs> white men taking over things? Wow. Wow. Weird. Weird. <laughs> that is, that's the weirdest part of the story. Mm, no kidding. Uh, so, <laughs> Victoria mentioned uh, the previous stated threat directed towards Randy, and he seemed unaware of the mentioned threat, and someone actually broke down stating that he feels at blame um, as to what happened to Marsha. Because at, at that point, he's like, holy shit, I didn't realize this. And then, of course, there was a statement like, if he doesn't stop, what happened to Marsha will happen to him. And he was like, holy shit. Holy shit. Like, did I turn over rocks I wasn't supposed to turn over? Which, like, oh, maybe, but, like, you know, you had a hunch, right? You had to go with it at some point. It's just... Who knows? Like, and and that's the the other thing. Like, we don't know if that exactly is what happened. Unfortunately, we still don't know. But to me, it's kind of like the writing's a little bit on the wall with this one. Like, it's it's not written in stone, but like, there's a little bit of like, it could have been a mob, you know? It could have been a murder and not a suicide. Let's let's circle possible homicide, but then we're going to write down death by suicide. Because that's what educated policemen do. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) So, apparently, uh, there was an additional, like, additional huge thing that Victoria found. So, she found a statement that Marsha was being followed around by two men on July 5th at 4 a.m. on 5th Avenue heading towards the Hudson River. But... there was no record of this with NYPD, which are we shocked? Are they doing their homework? Are they actually looking into it? Or we just push it under the rug as per usual? Did did they look into it or did they say, you know what, it's time for Duncan because America runs on Duncan. They're not our sponsor, (laughs) but (laughs) you know what? I... I'm just saying, somebody didn't pull up their magnifying glass and go, hmm, this looks like it needs further investigation. It's more like, well, they're not white, they're not heterosexual, and they're not my friend, or, you know, part of my inner circle social group, so I'm going to turn a blind eye and potentially botch the whole investigation but once again speculating wildly because we don't know but we have an idea no anyways uh in the documentary again victoria did receive autopsy documentation about marsh's death from the nypd in which some of the documents uh, circled possible homicide and know that they observed marsha had discoloration throughout the body Victoria was also able to get images of Marsha's body on a CD, which I can imagine was obviously probably traumatizing, if not re-traumatizing. Like, it's one thing to read about someone that you care about, but I think it's another thing to actually see the aftermath, right? Like, I don't know, what do you think? I can imagine just a lot of levels of PTSD from this because she's not a cop. No. And she's having to research all of this because nobody else is. And she's not been exposed to this kind of thing before. So now she's trying to do the best she can. And then to get pictures like that is, I can't even imagine. 
I how would, harsh that would be, how much that would mess you up. Like, right. And I would recommend the documentary again, only because you do find out a little bit more about Victoria and their story is super fascinating and very sad. Like the whole, this whole community has been through the fucking wire and we only know a cusp about it. Like, and, and to think that this is stuff that we should have learned in school, we should have learned off the get-go, but we don't because it's not, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, like, it doesn't speak white heterosexual normalcy, right? So therefore we just don't talk about it. We talk about Christopher Columbus a shit ton for some reason, even though he was a dick, but we don't talk about you know, like, I didn't know anything about Stonewall Riots until probably on my undergrad, right? Like, Oh, I had to go to college and start talking to other people with different backgrounds and different lifestyles to actually understand that, like, holy crap, coming from a small farming community, like, there's a whole nother, there's so many other communities and cultures that I had no idea and right. definitely needed to learn about so that I could be understanding and respectful when years before I had no idea. Yeah, exactly. Like, and there's exactly. no representation. So, like, in school, there's we don't learn it. No, exactly. Um, so next, Victoria then interviews medical examiner Dr. Michael Badden, uh, who explained that based on the evidence, he felt that Marsha went into the water still breathing and or alive. However, uh, Dr. Baden noted that Marsha could have been pushed in or chased in, but that kind of evidence would have been up to who to look into. Was that the, the police <laughs> department, did you say? Police. I feel like we're no. on an episode of Dor- of that. Of, of, sorry, I'm trying not to laugh as I'm saying it, but I'm just going to say Dora, where it's like, do we know who didn't do their job? <laughs> Tell us. Can you do it with me? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. Mind-boggling. There was no violent assault to Marsha's body, so, like, there wasn't, like, cuts or scrapes. Like, there wasn't stab wounds. There wasn't a gunshot wound or anything. Um, And Dr. Baden felt that because Marsha's body was in the water, her skin and body may have succumbed to the environment, which could explain the reported wound at the back of Marsha's head. So, for example, like... Uh, at the pier, it looks like there are pieces of wood kind of sticking out. I don't know if that's just for like boats that are in the like. I don't. I don't really know that much, but like boats to like hook up to or whatever it may be, or a buoy even. But he essentially was just like, you know, that could have been post mortem. That that might not have been necessarily like, you know, what killed them. It could have just been aftermath of they were in the water. You know, Marsha obviously just didn't lay still. She was, or they were, sorry, in the water, moving around, right? Like, we don't know. No way to know. Yeah, but there's no way to tell if she, or they jumped or was pushed. Like, yeah, you have to push pretty damn hard and with something to leave a mark, especially if they're going through water and exactly. all, all that. But there's a lot more that could have been done beforehand that obviously wasn't looked into 
wasn't looked into. And, you know, I mentioned Dr. Baden, so luckily he was supportive. However, Victoria still faced a lack of real collaboration or assistance from NYPD along with the government uh, in New York. So at the end of the documentary, it kind of shows Victoria mailing, uh, sending documentation to the FBI, which like, whoo-wee. Go go to the top because that's who will actually. Well, I can't say that's who will pay attention. I mean, we don't have an FBI here, not that I'm aware of. Mind you, my agent hasn't been following through with me, even though I keep leaving my laptop computer camera on. Never <laughs> never checks in anymore. You know, I say a lot of you know contemplating shit, and he's just like, mm, yeah, okay, I'm busy. Um, where was I going with that? But anyways, essentially. You know, Victoria sends some documentation to the FBI, which I'm I'm going to speculate wildly that that was the next step. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't find any more of an update. So that's kind of that's kind of it in terms of like where the case stands. However, there is some more information. So don't turn don't turn us off just yet. Um on the website where love is legal, Victoria shares their background and about the documentary regarding the documentary. She's quoted to state, uh, after I retired, I was home alone and I began to get calls from David France. David France did the documentary. Uh, I was retired and didn't want anything to do with work. But one day I got bored and decided to call David France and he asked me to do the film, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, and I accepted it. This was a rewarding experience because I was able to live my life all over again and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Now I'm able to relive my life and keep the community together because that's one promise that I made to Sylvia Rivera on her deathbed. She asked me to try and keep the community together because there's power in numbers, which, yeah, that very heartfelt. Right. And, um, you know, Sylvia really turned their life around. Like after Marsha died, you know, I, I think they struggled with alcohol and they're just overall struggling with just the loss and the grief, right? Like, you know, people grieve differently and they were really struggling. And eventually at one point in the documentary, it shows Sylvia um, got on, you know, or got on got sober and was able to, you know, speak in front of crowds again, was able to encourage people like, hey, we can do this, don't give up, you know, we're going to make a difference because even though our community faces so much hate, if we show them love and compassion and acceptance, hopefully someday the human race won't be, you know, a big pile of shit. <laughs> and that's not a direct quote, by the way, that's that's my... <laughs> summary of what essentially went on <laughs> so before but I to deal with that grief to oh, have yeah. such grief and like a sudden and shocking death to then go through all of that and push through the adversity and still be a public speaker and stand up for your community pretty impressive pretty friggin impressive like i don't know if i mentally could do that but like holy crap, like, that's, that's a, that's an idol to look after, like, look at, right, like, holy crap, like, you lost your best friend, your partner, um, business partner, you know, your companion, and you still stood in front of all these young people who, you know, heard of Stonewall, or heard of, like, you know, the first Pride, 
and heard your name before but didn't really know you and saying you know what like we're gonna get through this we're gonna push through and we're gonna show them that we deserve the same rights as every other human being just because we're different doesn't mean that we deserve less like and to go through the route of showing love and compassion in the mm. face of adversity instead of instead aggression of. and disrespect. Like you're proving that it's not that hard and you can do it. Exactly. Like exactly. Stronger stronger people than I. Stronger people than I. Um so after Marsha's death, RuPaul um RuPaul, which if you don't know who RuPaul is, get a book. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Um, RuPaul. (laughs) Yeah. Get a Crave subscription. Turn on your television. RuPaul is amazing. Um, RuPaul has called Marsha an aspiration. Inspiration. I can't read or talk. uh, An inspiration describing Marsha as the, quote, true drag mother. In June 2019, Marsha was named one of 50 American, quote, pioneers, trailblazers, and heroes, inducted on the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor within the Stonewall National Monument in the Stonewall Inn. Uh, and the Stone, Stonewall National, National sorry, Monument is the first U.S. national monument dedicated to LGBTQ rights and its history. And back in February of this year, so 2020, February 2020, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York announced that the East River Park in Brooklyn will be renamed in Marsha's honor. It will be the first, and once again, the first New York State Park named after an LGBTQ plus person. Of this year. Of this year. I'm sorry. I'm I'm not great at history. I realize that there's been national and like conservations and all kinds of parks beforehand. <laughs> but to have to wait until 2020 right? to have any like a queer person represent how is this a thing? I it's know. 2020. Like but why yet, did it take you so goddamn long? But yet we have statues, like even in Canada, of slave of known slave owners or known racist bigots but yet we don't but yet like we're, I'm sorry it took us how long like and I say us as in like you know just in general as like as a as, as the world you know but I like I couldn't tell you if we even have an LGBTQ uh dedicated park or monument or statue or anything and that's why well, I know not in my community like no, on mine either this yeah i don't understand this stuff man like i understand that the states is what we're focusing on today with the story but canada's we're good but we're not great like there's a lot of things that could change for the better exactly um so if you're pissed off just hold on to that (laughs) because you're gonna get more pissed off so we're gonna I, I took actually a direct quote from the Human Rights Campaign website. And once again, this is based in uh, the States. Unfortunately, I couldn't find really any updated information in Canada. And I just felt like this quote, you know, even though it's in the States, it still paints a picture of why everything shit. Um, but the quote reads, 
In 2018, advocates tracked at least 26 deaths of at least transgender or gender non-conforming people in the U.S. due to fatal violence, the majority of whom were black transgender women. These victims were killed by acquaintances, acquaintances, partners, and strangers, some of whom have been arrested and charged, while others have yet to be identified. While the deaths of these cases differ, it is clear that fatal violence disproportionately affects transgender women of color and that the intersections of racism, sexism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, and unchecked access to guns conspire to deprive them of employment, housing, health care, and other necessities barriers that make them vulnerable. Many of these victims are misgendered in local police statements and media reports, which can delay our awareness of deadly instances. Sadly, 2019 obviously wasn't a better year by any means. Um, they, I don't know what the summary of it was, but at the time when they wrote this, the U.S. saw 27 transgender or gender nonconforming people fatally shot or killed by other violent means. We say at least, obviously, because too often these stories go unreported or misreported. Okay, the yeah. fact that you can't even get their fucking pronouns right after right. their death, like, right. what a what a slap in the face. It's That's like, not okay. It's not okay. Just because you think you know how someone identifies doesn't necessarily mean that you actually fucking know. It's, you need to stop assuming because it makes an ass of who? You and me. Mostly you, but I'm involved because you made me involved, so now it's both of us, right? Like, it just, it's not hard to identify tell or like it's not hard to ask somebody like hey like what are you comfortable with hey like you know what what would you prefer I refer to you as or even saying like hey like my name's Alex and I go by she her nice to meet you like what it's not that hard it can easily be part of a conversation exactly and the sooner we make it normal the sooner it loses this connotation of oh so now I have to do this and now I have to change this exactly. uh, yeah you do get over it exactly. learn to be more accepting it's exactly. not that hard and the fact that it's only 26 or 27 in a year I find that hard to believe because I'm sure right? there are so many more that are going unreported because mm. they're like smothering evidence or smothering the stories or not wanting to put it out there or people just don't really know because there's a lot of people that don't or just can't express themselves the way they want well, to because of where they are. Exactly. And not to paint a picture, but essentially like, let's say if someone who is gender nonconforming, um, similar to Marsha, you know, living on the streets, maybe practicing or in, uh, involved in survival sex as a way to get a meal or to just, survive if someone was to murder them do you, you like do you really think that they'd be top line front page news or do we think that the blonde girl from you know Arkansas whose family was upper middle class is going to get the front page like which one do you think is going to get that actual publicity and that dedication and that acknowledgement that they were somebody it's 
bullshit and before I blow a blood vessel. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's in the States. It's in Canada. Oh, yeah. Like, just do. because ours is not necessarily trans-focused right now. No. Look at how many Indigenous women are missing. Oh, like, right. it is mind-blowing. The exactly. stats and the numbers and the amount of things that just get pushed to the side. I, I can't even comprehend it. And I'm trying to learn more and like going to different websites and starting right. to read books on things just to educate myself so I can be a better fucking human right. and understand that, yeah, this, this shit's not okay. But yet we have to struggle to make grown adults wear masks and focus all of our energy on that because apparently that needs energy to focus on because we can't just all wear fucking wear masks. Oh my God, I don't understand people. I, I, I don't, I don't, I do not. Um, but you said something in, <laughs> that, that I want to emphasize on. You said educate yourself. And so for this episode um, in the description, you'll notice that we include a bunch of different websites, um, charities you can donate to. And I tried to look for some in the States, some in Canada. I even found one in Australia because I know we got some Australia, Australian listeners. Sorry. Um, so please, once you're done, once you've listened to the credits, whatever outro music, the little trailer um, at the very end, because we do have a trailer from another podcast at the very, very end. So please stick around and listen to it. And I believe this episode, it is Bring the Mio. Just listen, but also read the description. Also check out the websites. Educate yourself because we as humans need to keep adapting to things. And this is something that I feel like we should have adapted to a long fucking time ago. But you know what? Just get fucking educated. Educate yourself. It takes, like, two minutes a day to just find a news article or a blog from someone who's experienced something very different than yourself mm-hmm. and learn a little bit more for growth. Like, I could spend an hour on TikTok and not learn a damn thing. <laughs> or I could spend five minutes reading a post from someone who is in the LGBTQ plus community right. And just one little speck of information that can yeah. stick with me and change my perspective and change how I interact with people to try and be a better human. Exactly. Because it's all something we have to work on. Exactly. On that note, some resources I used for this episode. Good old Wicka 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 Wikipedia, as per usual. Uh, Netflix documentary, and once again, highly recommend it. Um, the Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. Uh, Mirror article written by Tamara Davidson. Where is Where Love is Legal website. Uh, New York Times article, Marsha P. Johnson by Sewell Chan. And finally, the Human Rights Campaign website. Um and now we're on to some shout outs do you want to hear about some other cool podcasts because like why not stuck in isolation i need more stuff to listen to awesome all right hit me with it i'm gonna hit you with it but not actually because like you're on a screen and i don't want to hit my laptop because she's she's my baby anyways (laughs) um so the first podcast that we're gonna be shouting out is called it's murder up north Ooh, spooky 
I love it. Another true crime podcast that focuses on crimes committed in the north of England. Stories cover involve Wendy Sewell, Leslie Whittle, James sorry, Jamie Lavis, and more. You can listen to It's Murder Up North podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and can check out their Twitter at Murder Up North. Sounds pretty sick. <laughs> the next one. The next one is called Gag on This Podcast, uh, hosted by Nick, Rob, and Danny D. Uh, provides you a little bit of that humor we need in our everyday lives as they interview comedians about their comedy along with random topics. And you can listen to them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Radio.com. Number three on the shoutout list is The Dark Divide. Spooky. Love some more spooky stuff. Um, But I don't think there is a better way to describe this other than its description, which reads, quote, A true crime podcast that takes it takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. <laughs> Let chomp. that sit. Yeah, chomp. <laughs> no, but for real, you guys gotta check out. <laughs> you gotta check out the Dark Divide. I, it's on my list. I'm dying to hear it, figuratively, not literally. Um, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and check out their Twitter page at Dark Divide Pod. Uh, the next one is Take Up Space Pod, which we might need after this episode. Um, so we're going to join hosts Kayla, Leah, and Jason as they walk you down how to care and love for yourself through a wide range of topics. Need a boost of empowerment? Definitely give Take Up Space Podcast a listen. Oh. Shout out for mental health stuff. Everybody needs it. Everybody I need it. needs it. I do too, because 2020... LOL. Uh, You can listen to Take Up Space Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And finally, the last shout out of this episode, number five. What do we got? We got Amish Baby Machine Pop Culture Podcast. Say that 10 times fast, go. What the hell is that? That sounds amazing. So this comedy pop culture podcast discusses everything pop culture, including food, movies, gaming, and more. You can listen to Amish Baby Machine Pop Culture Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and more. And if you are wondering, but Alex, where do we find you and Christy and your awesome special guests? Where do we listen? Where do we email you? Well, my dear weirdos, we are getting to it. Once I remove the saliva from the sides of my mouth from talking too fast, uh, you can email us either feedback, story requests, just say hello, ask us how our day is going. That would be nice. No pressure. Um, at Weird Distractions Podcast at Outlook.com. Hit us up on Instagram at Weird Distractions Pod. Twitter at Weird Distract I1. Um, you can listen to us. Oh, God, Christy always has this, like, nailed down. I think it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Good Pod, Stitcher? <laughs> Any, I'm going to just flat out say anywhere you can listen to podcasts, you can probably find us. If there's a platform that you can't find us on, email us at weirddistractionspodcast.olook.com. Let us know. We'll try and make it happen. And Maggie, Do you have anything you'd like to say to our listeners, primarily those who are listening from Canada, the States, we've got a couple in Australia, Germany, Spain, got Emily in Dubai, our only Dubai listener. Hi, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) 
Dude, it was so much fun chatting about actual stuff with you and having a guest appearance on this podcast. Oh, yeah. um, I'm so happy you picked this story. And I think everyone should just learn something new every day. It's not too hard. Helps nope. your mental health. Exactly. And make you a better person. And if that new thing you learn is about the queer community, awesome. Or some other minority, even better. Bring it Amazing. on. Here for it. <laughs> Thank you once again for being on the show and not making me beg for you to be on the show. And we hope to have you on soon, hopefully for a spooky, spooky dooky, awesome possum, creepy Ghost episode. Yes, because we yes. are wannabe ghost hunters. It's not actually going to happen right now because COVID, but like you never know, right? Um, but to wrap this up, need a distraction? We got you. Thanks for listening. Stay weird. Don't be a dick to other people. And goodbye. Bye. Bye. Four best friends from Arizona. We love to get together, have a great time, and get lit. We bring the Mio wherever we go. Our signature drink is vodka and Mio. Mio is a flavor enhancer, and it's a game changer. Game changer. We pregame with Mio, and we talk about all that explicit shit. We talk about a lot of sex and alcohol, so if you're ready, come on, stop by. If you're ready for a down-ass time, check us out on Apple Podcast and Spreaker. We drop that good shit every Friday. Follow us on Insta, Twitter, and TikTok. Hey! Hey. At Bring the Mio.